0: Live. Live from. Welcome to New York. This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast.
1: For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his ankle on me. Follow
0: me to freedom. It's all ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. <laughs>
2: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, your New York sports talk and long suffering fam. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. Hope you enjoyed the Cyber Monday pop culture special. I actually feel pretty good now. In baseball, we are not feeling great. We have a lockout. Don't know when it's going to end. I'm going to be joined by our legal guy, Phil Frietta, in just a minute. We're going to talk all about the CBA. What happens now that it's expired? What the big issues are, and more importantly, how is this going to end? When might we see a resolution to this? Because it sounds like now that the owners did this to try and prevent the loss of actual games. The sides are very far apart. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Also, going to do our week 13 NFL picks here. and be joined by Giant fan Phil Lombardo. We're going to talk about the Giants' very, very ugly win over the Eagles. They got the Dolphins this week. Two teams on the fringes of the playoff hunt. So we will talk to Phil, make our picks in just a bit. Make sure you lock in at the end of the show for six, two minutes, Where I'm going to weigh in some of these weasel college football coaches. The one leaving Notre Dame, I'm not very happy with him. I think he really is a weasel. So talk about him at the end of the show. But we'll get it all started here with our opening tip, where I'm going to catch you up on the very fun week of offseason we had, because the all the free agent frenzy was fantastic. I'll break it all down right after
0: this. ready for this the opening
2: tip and here we go all right opening tip time and i got to say the off season stuff has been so much fun prior to wednesday at midnight because we had a deadline Everybody knew that the CBA was going to expire at 11.59 on December 1st. At the lockout, it's probably coming December 2nd. So a lot of these teams, a lot of these players saying, you know what? Let's get some work done while we can. Let's get some contracts signed. And it made the MLB offseason actually fun again. Because this goes back to sort of the old days when you had the winter meetings. A lot of stuff happened. Not like it's been where guys have waited till late January. February, I believe Bryce Harper was March a couple of years ago to sign contracts. Now we're getting a lot of big things off the board. The biggest winners, though, were the Mets, who finally got Steve Cohen to flex his wallet. He finally got the chance to do it after getting spurned by Steven mats of all people. And this all goes back to the day before Thanksgiving. The Mets thought they had a deal with Steven Matz. Four years, 44 million. Matz's agent went back on the deal, went to the Cardinals, got a contract signing there. Colin went on Twitter and say, I never seen anything more unprofessional in my life. Apparently he the Mets felt that Matt's agent put him on Zoom and said, "I have a dream of coming back. It's my mission." Then he is using to get more money. That made him angry. And he started spending money. They started on Black Friday. They got a lot of shopping done. They brought in Eduardo Escobar and Mark Kana, nice pickups for the for the roster, change up the offense, bringing some high contact Average guy as opposed to the swing and miss approach a lot of the current Mets had. Starling Marte coming in here. Gets a true center field on this roster for the first time since Carlos Beltran. And that's a big deal because Brandon Nimble was playing it. He was fine there defensively, but he got hurt a lot. So when you move him to the corner, he gets better. He adds some speed, adds some more contact skills, adds some leadership. But the headliner is obviously Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer gets a three-year, $130 million deal with the Mets. $43.3 $43.3 million AAV, the largest average annual salary on a contract ever, shattering Garrett Cole's $36 million deal for the Yankees. This is a game changer because this buries a narrative that people do not want to come from New York and play for the Mets. Because all we heard about was, oh, nobody wants to play for the Mets. They're dysfunctional. They're a dumpster fire. Nobody wants Steve Cohen's money. We that with the GM search. This is the changer. This, I think, is the biggest perception-changing free agent since the brought in Pedro Martinez in 2005. Remember, Pedro's coming off the World Series with the Red Sox, and people said he was on decline. He was looking for a three-year deal. The Mets gave him four. He came here, and he immediately made it a place people wanted to come. That's that Carlos Beltran comes. Carlos guy wants to get traded here, and he basically makes that happen. A lot of big players start coming to the Mets. Max Scherzer is going to be that kind of guy because... You put him at a top of that rotation with Jacob DeGrom, and they're both healthy, that's very tough to beat. If you get in the tournament, and right now it sounds like MLB wants to expand the tournament from five teams per league to seven, and you have Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer back-to-back in a short series, the odds of you losing are very low. The Mets still have work to do. They need have the starting pitcher. Because right now they want to avoid having to dip into that Tyler McGill, David David Peterson, depth option. Let them both be in AAA. You can help in the bullpen because remember they've lost Aaron Loop. Familiar is a free agent. They need to get some arms out there. You let's see him get another big bat. I would prefer Chris Bryant. I don't know if it's going to happen. Mets have shown that they are willing to do what it takes to win it all. And at this point, they have blown past the luxury tax. They have spent a lot of money. And Steve Cohen outlayed $254.5 million in contracts. He stuck true his word where he said, Going over the large size by a dollar is stupid. If you're going over, blow by it. That's exactly what he's done. Some other big movers and shakers here of the early offseason. The one team in baseball to outspend Steve Cohen was the Texas Rangers. They went bananas. They gave Marcus Simeon seven-year, $175 million after his breakout year in Toronto. They get Corey Seager 10 years, $325 million to get away from the Dodgers. They get the most expensive middle infield in baseball. They also picked up John Gray in their rotation. And John Gray is a guy who's interesting to a lot of people because he pitched in Colorado. He's got good stuff. The thought has always been, get him out of Denver. This guy can be a star. They got him for a reasonable contract, reasonable four-year deal. We'll see what happens there. The Tigers had been some big moves. They bring in Eduardo Rodriguez early in the offseason. They get a $77 million contract. He was sort of the tipping point for all the pitchers getting the money. The big splash was obviously Javi Baez left the Mets, got a six-year, $140 million deal with an opt-out of the year two from the Tigers. And we'd heard from Andy Martino at SNY that the Mets offered him 125 I think the issue was not the money. I think the issue was more with the term. Because Javier Baez's skills may not age gracefully. He's a guy who thrives on contact outside the strike zone, who relies on speed and some instincts. And like if the speed starts going and the range diminishes a bit, that contract could be very ugly in years four, five, and six. You could have Ioannis assess his bust potential with his contract. Remember the Mets traded for Ioannis, signed him for the first contract, get a good 2016, regret the second contract based the second they signed it. I think if this is a short-term deal with high AAV, they would have been all over him. But I think with how long it is, they said, okay, we will go somewhere else. The Mariners picked up Robbie Ray on a five-year, $115 million deal. That's huge for them to get the AL Cy Young Award winner out to Seattle. They missed the playoffs barely a year ago. Remember, they were red hot down the stretch. They lost a critical game late in the season, missed by about a game. And they are trying hard to look for more help to snap the longest postseason drought in American sports. And we've heard they're linked to Bryant. They're in on Trevor Story. They're looking for infield help. They could use more pitching. The Mariners will be busy when the lockout ends. The Blue Jays did lose Simeon, but they did make some moves to the organization. They extended Jose Barrios long-term. know, seven years, $131 million. They had Kevin Gausman, five years, 110. He turned down more money from the Mets. The Mets offered about 120. They have a dynamic rotation there. And watch the Blue Jays in America American the East. They lost Simeon. They lost Robbie Ray. But they came up with a replacement. They have Barrios, who they traded for, extended long-term. They are going to be a big force for years. The Angels... Picked up Noah Syndergaard and Aaron Lou from the Mets trying to improve their pitching staff. They were trying. Didn't land the big fish. Did not beat the Mets out for Scherzer, but they are still looking for pitching. The Marlins are active. They signed Avicel Garcia on a four-year contract to bolster outfield. The Marlins are acting like they want to win right now, which is great because Miami trying to win would be good for baseball. The Cubs got Marcus Stroman. He left the Mets. Three years, $71 million. Not The Mets were not that interested in bringing Stroman back. I feel like some of that was the off the field stuff with him on social media and trying to change things up in that clubhouse because I think they're trying to bring more leadership and accountability into their room, which they've done with the guys they brought in. Strong's a good pitcher, but I don't think the fit was right here. And then there's the Yankees, who thus far have made a couple moves. They re-signed Jolie Peralta for the bullpen. They signed Jose Peraza a minor league deal. And that's it. For all the talk right now of the Yankees about how they had to make changes, they had play role flexibility, they need a shortstop, they need help at center field, they want to address behind the plate, they want to add pitching. They've done nothing. They are basically right now running this group back with the same manager, with a slightly changed coaching staff. We've heard a lot about how they're interested in guys. They're interested in Corey Seager. Did not get him. They were interest, They were interested in trading for Jacob Stallings from the from the Pirates. who ends up selling in Miami. Did not get that trade done. We heard they were interested in other guys. We heard they were interested in Carlos Correa. Did not come close to a contract with him before the lockout started. Where are the moves? Where are the moves? We heard that they're interested in everyone, but they have not signed anyone. Who does that remind you of? Who used to make a living on? We're interested in so-and-so, but wait, the price is too high. We're not doing it. I'll let you ponder that one. But it always comes to a stop right now because the sport's in a lockout. The owners have locked out the players. Don't know when we're going to get resolution on this. We're getting more into the labor situation with our legal correspondent, Phil Frey, right after this. All right, we are back here on the podcast. Doing the thing I did not want to have to be doing here where we're having our legal correspondent be the main guest of the week, but Major League Baseball has done this to us. We have no CBA, so we have a lockout in effect. Joining me today, our legal correspondent, Phil To Phil, how are you? I'm okay, Mike. How are you? I'm doing all right. I mean, the week and a half of offseason we had was pretty fun. I mean, I got to see some enjoyment. I know you didn't get as much out of the Yankees, but it was something.
1: Yeah, uh, you. I guess we could start with the good for, for you and the bad for me. Uh, the Steve Cohen has arrived. Um, if your listeners remember when we were talking about uh, Steve Cohen taking the job, I, I said that this was going to be the concern of other owners, was he was going to come and just throw his money around, and that's what he did.
2: Yeah, he did. Max Scherzer is here. They got three more players. They might get more after the lockout's over. Yankees, though, I mean – what are they doing?
1: It's We're going to touch on this with the lockout stuff because a lot of it overlaps. But the Yankees are – they're cheap now. There's no other word for it. They're just they're, – they're cheap. And I know that that is probably uh, shocking to the average casual baseball fan. You think of the big, bad Yankees. But let's face it, Mike, this is – they don't go over the luxury tax anymore. Their payroll is about the same as it was in 2005. So, uh, you know, all those years later, you would think their payroll would go up. The average payroll in baseball has gone up a lot. I think it's almost doubled. And the Yankees has stayed the same. They're, they're just they're not going to go over that tax. And uh, and that, that's what they're going to do. They're going to sit pat and uh, not go over the tax. Maybe, you know, the, there's the trade market. Maybe they'll try and make a move there. But. Everything the Yankees do is designed to stay under the larger attack.
2: Yeah, for sure. Now let's get to why you're here, which is this lockout. And we had the flurry of activity. I think over $1.4 billion spent on free agent contracts. It's all ground to a halt now. The owners locked out the players last night. So let's start the mechanics here. Why did the owners do this?
1: So we told you. You, me and you both told the listeners that this was going to happen a year and a half ago. So uh, I'm not surprised at all that it actually did happen. But the reason they did it is the old CBA, collective bargaining agreement, expired uh, on, on 1130 at 1159 p.m. So two days ago now. Uh, it's actually one day ago. The, or one day ago. Rather. Yeah, it expired a day ago. And uh, the, the owner's... That, that's their move as a labor tactic is to lock out the players. By doing that, they put some additional pressure on the players. Nobody's going to get paid. Nobody can go use the facilities over the offseason. Uh, it, it puts pressure on guys to maybe give, them, give in and give them a more favorable deal. Uh, of course, that time pressure is not really going to start to hit either side until February, March, when you start getting to the point where, wow, games may be missed. Uh, So right now, I wouldn't view much into it other than just kind of posturing.
2: Yeah, for sure. And did you read Rob Manfred's letter to baseball fans today?
1: I did. uh, I was disgusted by it. Um, I think I've made my views on these issues pretty clear. I almost always side with the players over the owners. And uh, for Manfred to just act like they're they're acting in the best interest of the fans and the small market teams, it's a joke. Uh, they they're acting in the best interest of their wallets.
2: Yeah, I'll read an excerpt from the letter here. I'll link to it in the show notes here. And this is the section I think is interesting the wording here. Despite the league's best efforts to make a deal with the players association, we were unable to extend our twenty-six year long history of labor peace and come to agree with the agreement MLBPA for the current CBA expired. Therefore, We have been forced, keyword there, forced, to commence a lockout of Major League players effective at 12.01 a.m. Eastern time on December 2nd. I want to explain to you how we got here and why we have to take this action today. Simply put, we believe that an offseason lockout is the best mechanism to protect the 2022 season. We hope that the lockout will jumpstart negotiations and get us to an agreement that will allow the season to start on time. This defensive lockout is necessary because the Players Association's vision for Major League Baseball would threaten the ability of most teams to be competitive. It's simply not a viable option. From the beginning, the NLBPA is unwilling to move in their starting position, compromise, or collaborate on solutions. So I think the interesting word there is the fact that the they are claiming that they were forced to do this when in real reality they were not.
1: Well, no, they weren't forced to do it. They could have made a deal. But, but I do agree with Manfred that if you can't reach a deal, the lockout does make the most sense. It does put some pressure on both sides to actually get something done and not miss games. But, uh, but no, that they they were not forced to do it. And I'm sure later in the segment we'll get into some of the specifics about what they're actually fighting over.
2: Yeah, for sure. And before we dive into a little more of this instant exploration, I play. I did pull some clips from the Rob Manfred press conference this morning. it's ESPN did not carry this live. They shared Stephen A. Smith ranting with the Cowboys at 10 a.m. But LB Network had it. SNY got the audio online. So here's your f- first clip from Manfred. Talk about the idea of the economic levers that you were discussing. Uh, you, you know, look, it's part of the um, theory
3: that underlies the National Labor Relations Act, right? People need pressure sometimes to get to an agreement. Candidly, we didn't feel that sense of pressure um, uh, from the other side uh, during the course of this week. And, you know, the only tool available to you under the act is to apply economic leverage So what do you think about that
1: yeah he's right he's right about that uh i don't dispute that everybody if you want to make a business deal you need a deadline everybody knows that uh because nobody really puts their best offer on the table until there's a deadline and uh that is the way that the nlra the law he referenced That's that's how it's structured uh that you can put some economic pressure on, on the other side to get a deal done. Uh, so uh, I think he's right about that. It's, it's a shame that they had to get to the lockout because obviously they've been negotiating this for years now, but, uh, but without a deal, a lockout does make the most sense.
2: Yeah. Cause I think what the thing that I know, <laughs> I was watching MLB network afterwards today, and I know only network obviously has its, its point they wants to spin because they're obviously owned by MLB. So they're going to spin that point of view is that their argument they were making is, Hey, Whenever we've had a lockout, we have never lost games. Whereas if we had strikes, strikes have caused us games, most only 94 when the World Series is canceled because the players were playing on an old CBA and decided to strike in the middle of the season. So I think the argument they're making here is, hey, we're controlling the timing of the work stoppage. Instead of just trying to avoid it, and said, there's going to be one. We're going to do it now when it's not going to impact our product on the field. That's their sort of viewpoint on it.
1: Yeah, that's all well and good, but there's no reason that a lockout can't, result
2: in games being missed either
1: it resulted in an entire season being missed in the national hockey league uh, uh, i think that was about 15 years ago now so uh a lockout can end up just the same as a strike but at this point in time on december 2nd a lockout makes sense hopefully by the time we get to february march we're not still talking about a lockout
2: yeah before we get to some of the issues out there, so one thing that's interesting and people have noticed so to me and made fun of a lot is that at 11 59 basically at midnight when the lockout went into effect that MLB started scrubbing its websites of any references to its players so all the news stories about the free signs were gone all the player photos were gone we got generic material up there about like history historical moments and current CBA talks and they were asked Rob Manfred about this today he basically said it's a legal thing where we can't use their likeness and so on and try and avoid like legal issues. Do you, can you weigh in on that and explain like, what exactly he was trying to get at here?
1: Yeah. Uh, every single time you see some a major league baseball players name or likeness on any sort of property that is owned and operated by a major league baseball, it's governed by the collective bargaining agreement. The, how the, how those players are compensated under the NIL legislation name image likeness, is all governed by the collective bargaining agreement. So without a bargaining agreement, you can't do it. Uh, otherwise, you know, if, if the Yankee website starts advertising Aaron Judge, then Aaron Judge can say, "I want you to pay me for that," and there's no parameters in place under which he would be paid. So they they can't do it. They have to scrub the websites.
2: Yeah, my question is even more. I get like in terms of the marketing perspective, how you can't use them to say sell, t- try selling tickets or whatnot, but like. What about the news stories themselves? Like it could, they, they had to remove the stories of like, say the Mets signing Max Scherzer. I feel like that was like step overboard.
1: It, probably not, but it's a uh, better safe than sorry, right? Why, why not? Uh, so I think that's more of a, just let's be extra cautious type play. You, you can, the, all of right of publicity laws, as they're called across the country, permit uh, uses such as what you're describing to, to just, uh, give a factual news type story about a public figure. Max Scherzer signed a three-year deal with the Mets. So they, they'd probably be okay from legal footing, but why risk it? Just uh, to just get everything in order. Uh, I I understand what the league's doing there.
2: Yeah, I think also the way they did it has backfired. Also, as long <laughs> as you're not a big Twitter guy, but a lot of players on Twitter have now changed their profile photos to the blank player image that's on the website. I just trying to show you that they're all in right now on their position. So... Uh, this tactic may not have worked as well as the league was hoping.
1: Yeah. Look, that that's to be expected too. the union's going to stand strong. Uh, not to me, all that stuff is kind of just posturing and childish at this point. What I want to see is when it's February, when it's March, is that is Max Scherzer changing his profile picture or is he showing up for his $43 million? That, that that's when you really start to talk, uh, talk Turkey right now. If this is all kind of for show.
2: Yeah. Let's get to some of the issues that the league and the players are sorting through, what they can't seem to agree on here. We'll start out with the whole angles of service time, free agency, that stuff. I want to start out with probably the most ridiculous quote of the day from Rob Manfred. He has asked about free agency in the press conference. So here is his response about free agency.
3: Let, let, let me take, let's take five-year free agency. I think that the, you know, we already have Um, teams in smaller markets that struggle to compete, um, shortening the period of time that they control players makes it even harder for them to compete. It's also bad for fans in those markets. The most negative reaction we have is when a player leaves via free agency. We don't see that making it earlier, available earlier. We don't see that as a positive.
2: Yeah, that whole thing is ridiculous to me because that to me just screams the point of like, small market teams don't want to spend the money so we're going to make them give them the opportunity to hold the rights of the players as long as they possibly can
1: it's it's ridiculous unfortunately though a lot of fans fall for it and that's why Rob Manfred's playing that up there, there are a lot of fans who believe uh, that free agency the lack of a salary cap is beneficial to the uh, or hurts the competitive balance of the sport the, the reality there is exactly what you said the Pittsburgh Pirates don't want to pay anybody so now they don't have to pay anybody for six years. They can keep them under their control. Uh, to to me, it's the players have a valid argument on free agency, and it, it you need to take a step back, Mike, and think about this as if you were any other guy in in America. If Imagine, you know, I, I work for a law firm. Imagine if that law firm controlled my employment rate for six years. I couldn't quit my job and get a new job with any other law firm in America. That It's ridiculous. It, it's a ridiculous system as, as it is, that they can't go and get, you should be able to sign with whoever you want. I understand why that's not the case. They need some level, some semblance of competitive balance. Otherwise, they're going to have the 1950s Yankees where they have every good player in the league on their team. I get it. But the idea that moving it from six years to five years, which I don't think is that big of an ask from a players union is somehow going to cripple the small market teams is, is ridiculous.
2: Yeah. Do you have any players perspective on this? i found a great tw- tweet today from Robert stock. who was a pitcher. who most recently pitched for the Mets. And now he's a free agent. He said on his Twitter, quote, and players currently accept less pay than there were for their MILB years. And the first seven plus of their big league careers, this helps poorer teams compete with richer teams those poorer teams not trying to compete in baseball is worse because of it. This is an owner issue. And I think that's the point you're basically trying to reiterate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's two, there's two issues there. The first is exactly as you just said, these teams that are quote unquote poor, they're not poor by any means, any real means of that word. There is no reason in the world that the pirates can't sign people or the Marlins or so on and so forth. They, they just keep. So that, that's the first thing that you're getting. But the second thing, and to me, the, the more important thing uh, of all of this is let's look at what has happened to the sport of baseball in the last 15 years from the, from the last CBA and the one after that. These teams are so analytically driven now. They do not pay anybody who are, if you're over 30. How many guys over 30 get a contract anymore? Unless you are the top player in the league, a Max Scherzer type guy, you are not getting paid. So these players take less money than they're worth in their twenties for the privilege of becoming free agents, and then nobody wants them when they're thirty. How is that fair? It's not fair to anybody.
2: Yeah, it's not. I know the players' movement has been as it sort of been like, let's get to free agency after five years, or if you're twenty-nine and a half and you haven't hit it yet, you're automatically free agent at the end of that year, unless you're under contract. So I think that is a. I think it's a reasonable compromise because their whole point is, Hey, we need to get these guys paid earlier and the owners just don't want to do that because to, to them, to your point, I think is they see it more of a value play is like, Hey, we're getting great performance. These guys in their primes for less than what we would have to pay them if they were on the open market. And that's just that we don't want to want a buck right now is making us a lot of money.
1: Exactly. Because when you sign a free agent, there is a compromise with, with doing that. You normally have to, overpay. You pay the guy a little bit on the back end of his contract, that you know, he's probably not going to be worth it, it, The Mets just did that with Max Scherzer. There's a good chance that in year three of that contract, Max Scherzer is not worth $43 million. The Yankees did that a couple of years ago with Garrett Cole. And it goes on that he may not be worth that end of that contract. It goes on and on and on, but that's how the system works. So the owners are afraid of that. So what they'd rather do is say, I'm going to control a guy for his good prime years, and then by the time he gets on the free agency market, unless he's an absolute star, no one wants him anyway. So I can keep him on um,
2: cheap. Yeah. Because the over the guy, the 29 year old, like average player is not getting a good contract <clears throat> anymore. He's, he's supposed to take like one year deals or very benefit team beneficial two three year deals to say, hey, we'll pay you a 24 year old. Who's a lot cheaper instead of paying that guy.
1: Right. Uh, and so, so I actually thought that the union's position on that was very, very reasonable. Uh, They they could have went in there and said, we want free agency after three years or something like that. They didn't do that. They're knocking. So right now under the current system, for people who aren't familiar, it's six years. They want to knock it down to five or 29 and a half, whatever comes earlier. To me, that's pretty reasonable. Uh, I looked it up right before we got on the air. The average age of a free agent in Major League Baseball is about 31 or 32. So they're trying to knock that down a year and a half, two years, which will make a difference in, in players' incomes.
2: Yeah, I also thought it was hilarious in the letter that Rob Manfred basically cited. He said, Baseball's players have no salary cap, not subjected to a maximum length or dollar amount on contracts. In fact, only MLB has guaranteed contracts to run 10 or more years and excess $300 million. We do not propose anything that would change these fundamentals. We hold, we have, while we have heard repeatedly that free agency is quote-unquote broken, in the month of November, $1.7 billion committed to free agents, smashing the prior record by nearly four times. By the end of the offseason, clubs will commit more money to players than any offseason MLB history. So as typical, like, ownership tactic, you say, hey, we're spending money, don't blame us. So,
1: yeah, so there's a lot to unpack in that statement. The idea that baseball doesn't have a salary cap and the rest of the sports do, well, good for baseball. Why should the Players Union agree to a salary cap? And I, the, the fans who are listening to this podcast need to understand why I say that. Because I know that most fans are, oh, salary cap, that's a great idea. keeps everything a level playing field, blah, 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 blah. No, the problem with the salary cap is it artificially depresses everybody's salary. You don't want to have any sort of cap. If anything, you want a floor so that nobody could be too cheap. So that's number one. But the, the second thing, we spent all this money this offseason, that's that's great. Steve Cohen's a big reason why you spent all that money, but, that, but that's great. Let's explain why that happens. Because these teams knew that you were going to lock everybody out. So they had pressure to sign people. They can't wait till February because who the hell knows what's going to happen in February. And if you want to build your team, you got to sign people now.
2: Yeah. That's, that's what happened there. And the 1.7 million, I think about like 700 million that came from the Mets and the Texas Rangers.
1: Yeah. So you can thank Steve Cohen. Thank you. Thank you, Steve Cohen. And you know what? Every baseball fan should want 30 more Steve Cohen's around the league.
2: Yeah, because that's the point here. And I want to, before we dive more into this competitive balance and uh, sort of tanking mentality that the the players rightfully want to stop, here's what Rob Mayer had to say about small markets in his press conference today. Well,
3: look, I mean, I've watched this game, you know, as an insider for more than three decades. I, I think that most people who understand the game realize that in our smaller
2: markets, it's a lot harder to win than it is in our bigger markets. I will say this to Rob. What about Tampa Bay? Tampa Bay has made the World Series twice and they have done it with small market with smaller market payrolls, but they have spent wisely and they've t- actually tried to compete. That's not the same thing as the Pittsburgh Pirates or Baltimore ripping it down to the studs.
1: Yeah, that that that's right. There are ways to compete as a small market team. He's right. It is harder to compete as a small market team. Uh, no doubt about it. But allowing small market teams like the Pirates, and the Orioles and the A's to go on without spending any money whatsoever and running these basement payrolls, the Marlins, that's unacceptable. And you, you cannot have that in your sport because you know what, Mike, there are small market teams in every sport. And I understand they, they have the benefit of salary cap, but they are still trying to compete for the most part.
2: Yeah, that's true. And I think let's talk about these <coughs> couple things that sort of blend together here, which is the combating tanking and the luxury tax, because one of the other pros we heard from the league was that they were going to raise a salary floor to about a hundred million dollars, but they were gonna drop the luxury tax barrier down to one eighty. I think recently that counter where they said the luxury tax would start at 214 or something like that and get to two twenty. But the idea here of the floor, I think, is bothersome because that's just own, making owners who actually just putting money in their pockets actually spend the money as opposed to having a system that's compelling them to do it on their own.
1: Yeah, so I like the concept of a floor because I, I, I'm okay with that because it forces you to, to at least spend some money and it's going to get people more money. The problem is if you drop the tax, you're really suppressing salaries. Then, then you are essentially creating a salary cap. You're creating a a soft salary cap, well, almost NBA like, if you do that. That so, I think if I read it correctly, and you correct me, I believe the union's proposal actually just ditched the floor altogether.
2: Yeah, it I think the- that we're
1: just we're just going to go with a higher tax, which uh, which I think makes more sense from the union's perspective.
2: Yeah, I think, the, I think the proposal that they were talking about also is like something that I think the league threw in there. It's this idea of a draft lottery for the top three picks. So it's sort of disincentivize that you can't not just guarantee the number one pick for losing 110 games every year is that you actually have to do it. And then maybe something about penalties, yeah. whether if you're losing 100 games three years in a row, you're having your pick drop like certain percentages or stuff like that. I need to come up with measures in here to try and like inter- avoid these teams just racing to the bottom because that's not entertaining baseball for anybody.
1: Yeah. And, and look, that stuff is helpful and, and uh, I'm happy that they're willing to give it. But let's be honest. Tanking in baseball is a very different type of tanking than it is in, say, the NBA or the NHL or the NFL. Sorry. If you get the number one pick in the baseball draft, how, what, can you remember, Mike, the last time that somebody was really fighting for the number one pick in baseball because there was some star coming out? Bryce Harper is the last guy I can remember who, oh, wow, you got to get Bryce Harper. It's not, it's different. This isn't in, it's not guys who in major league baseball. You're not going to see them for three years. And the difference between picks one, two, three, four, and five is not as big as it is say in the NFL, where Trevor Lawrence is out there. We got to have the first pick
2: so we can get him. it. it, it it'll help a little bit, but I don't think it's as big of a deal as it is in other sports. The difference is with not it's not even the players. The fact that the way the draft is set up, but you get all this extra bonus money to spend on picks, which is like you know the whole idea of the slot. Where oh, like I'll go a little cheaper here, I can spend more on guys who are slipping here. So like their idea is like we're gonna spend our money and get more talent that way. That's sort of the incentive behind behind getting that top pick in baseball.
1: Right, and the, and part of the reason for that is that just the impact of the player. In in the NFL, you have a star quarterback. He has an enormous impact on the team. Major League Baseball, all right, maybe I, maybe the first overall pick is a superstar pitcher. He's not going to have that big of an impact on my team. I need to surround him with other players in order to be successful. So you have to allocate the draft slot bonuses, as, as they call them, to make sure that you get people. Plus, you have the whole situation of high school kids. Are so they actually going to sign or are they going to go to college? And, and you got to entice them to sign. So I, I'm happy that the league makes that concession. And I think the union will take it. But it's not a major
2: concession by any means. The other thing that was interesting on this, on this topic before we move on <laughs> is the whole idea that the players actually want to eliminate a hundred million dollars of revenue sharing, which they basically their, their position is they feel like that this money is not being spent on big league talents. It's just being put in the pockets of these own, some of these owners like in Pittsburgh or in Oakland. And I think that's an interesting way to just sort of incentivize like, Hey, like, if you're not going to spend it, we're not going to give it to you. And then the owners are going to go, wow, we need this money to survive. And we're not like we're, they're crying poverty. You know, they can sell these franchises anytime they want. So I think that's also an interesting thing. I sort of rattle some feathers in those negotiations.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with the union on that. Uh, it came, this came out a few years ago. Uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates turned a bigger profit than the Yankees year after year, at least on baseball operations. Not with, the, the Yankees are able to play those shenanigans because they don't include Yes. And the yes networks where they really make their huge money but uh the pittsburgh pirates turn an enormous profit and the reason they do is because they keep a low payroll and they take the revenue sharing money and they put it in their pocket and then they say that they're using it for scouting purposes and th- player development and, and bullshit like that sorry i don't think i'm allowed to say that bull crap like that uh so that's uh yeah i think it's it's smart that the league caught on to that
2: yeah We'll see what happens with that one. I think the other interesting thing I'm seeing in the round right now is the whole expanded playoffs idea was the owners are dying to shove in this thing regardless of whatever happens. They've been pushing 14 for a while. They went back to the whole, oh, the top seed gets the, gets the buy. We're going to have the TV special where the teams pick their opponents. The players kind of say, okay, we'll give you 12 teams. We're going to realign the divisions. So it's going to be eight in one division, seven in the other to make it more evenly distri- distributed for the playoffs. So I think that scenario... I think we're going to get expanded playoffs, but I think it's a very dumb idea This the sport as a whole.
1: So we talked about this, Mike, uh, about why expanded playoffs are bad for players. And again, it's counterintuitive because you would think, well, then more players get to play in the playoffs. The problem with expanded playoffs is that again, it allows teams to strive for mediocrity because if, if you're talking about half the league makes the playoffs, like the NBA, I can win 81 games and I'm going to have a playoff spot. So why would I make that, extra $10 million signing to bring in that extra bat to maybe move me from 81 to 91. I don't need to do that anymore. And, and, and that's the problem. You're going to water it down. And Mike, you and I have talked about this. This is kind of separate and apart from the whole lockout thing, but this idea that we're going to have a show where the you get to pick who you want to play is just complete. It's comical, just comical nonsense. That's another, that, that is so clearly designed to give a, an ESPN bidding war to try and get ESPN to pay them to add televise that nonsense. I don't like that. I just seed everybody and play the playoffs.
2: Yeah, they just want extra money because they have all this contract signed from the uh 2020 year when they had the all, the eight the eight series in the first round. They wanted as capital any any opportunity for a cash where they could take it.
4: Yeah,
1: and and the players understand that they're probably gonna have to give a little bit on that and playoffs or playoffs so i guess that's a little extra revenue for everybody but uh you need to be careful with that the players need to be careful to not water it down too much and the other thing mike just from a baseball perspective baseball is the kind of sport where the best team doesn't always win in fact the best teams win what 60 65 percent of their games over the course of a season so the more teams you bring into the playoffs the more 85 to 81 win teams are going to have winning the world series. Did we really want that? I'm not sure.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure either. And I think the other thing that's going to be a lock <laughs> on this point, universal DH is coming. It's a matter of when it gets put in the deal. But like, I think that's going to be pretty much a guarantee and the players will take that as something because that's 15 more highly paid jobs going to the national league.
1: Yeah. The, the owners all they, they lost that one. Uh, if there's anybody out there who, wants to see a pitcher bunt, Uh sorry because sorry, I, I don't think you're going to be able to see it in any baseball league across the, the world, uh, but certainly not in Major League Baseball anymore. Uh, they, they're going to lose that one. You're going to have a universal DH. The owners caved on it, and part of the reason that the owners caved on it is, let's be honest, do you think Steve Cohen wants to see Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom swinging a bat? I know DeGrom's a decent hitter, but he, I think he'd rather those guys sit in the dugout and put the jacket on when they're not pitching.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. That's going in there. One other thing that's popped up a little bit that hasn't gotten much attention is the idea of the international draft because right now, international free agency basically is, okay, here's a bonus pool. You can go sign whoever you want for whatever you want up to certain points. Then sort of an idea of like, oh, like the small market is being disadvantaged here because they don't have the resources to throw out these guys. So we're going to go ahead and give, have a draft, which again, sort of caps the earning potential of some of these guys, which I think is the, another thing the Players Association is very against because that's another way that they're trying to limit the potential earning power of these players.
1: Yep, exactly. It's, it's no different than the free agency angle. It's all trying to limit the earning potential of the players. Yep. Uh, so the, the, all, all of these things, it, it's a little backwards. It's hard to get your head around because, you know, everybody grew up with this idea that salary caps are fair. We want competitive balance, but you have to understand it from the player's perspective. All that means is owners can spend less money. And yep. that means less money goes to the players.
2: Yeah. And the other thing that hasn't really been talked about yet, and then Rob Manford said today they haven't really gotten there yet was the idea of on field rule chains. And I hope this is something that the league and the players don't forget that even while they're fighting over the money and when we're gonna be free agents and who's gonna spend what and whether we're gonna penalize the tankers, that the product of the field needs to improve. And I hope they start looking at things like while they're doing this don't just throw it throw it away to get the money deal settled quicker.
1: Yeah, so so I, I I agree with that. And there's a few No brainer on the field on field rule changes to me. The first is the extra inning nonsense. Can we we get rid of that? Can we go back to traditional extra innings, please? Uh, At least at least give me until the 12th inning before you start the guy on second base. It, it, that that rule, I just, I don't like it at all. Uh, I, I don't know what your thought is, Mike. I, I, I can't stand it.
2: I think for that one, 12th inning is fine because at that point, that's the point you want to avoid having the bullpen be destroyed. So yeah. I think that if you're not going to result after like a couple extra innings, fine. You probably extra run around there and try and get the game to end. So people aren't there for six, seven hours.
1: Yeah, so to me, that's an important one. The other one that I, I think is very important and I've, I've, I've come around on this, they got to ban the shift or at least limit the shift. The shift has really hurt hurt the game. It's created a scenario where we have superstar players or guys who should be superstar players who are really hampered in their ability to hit, and it 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 led to this movement of try and lift the ball out of the ballpark with the extra strikeouts, and it, it's it's just had a domino effect. And I really think we can limit the shift here. Uh, I I know that I, I'm probably in the minority about this, but. I don't. I just. I don't want to see a big slugger go up there and bunt the ball down the third base line. That. That. Why? That's not. That's not what I'm looking for. What I want to see is the guy have an opportunity to hit, put the ball in play, hit it hard, and get a base hit.
2: Yeah. I think for me, the one I want to see them go to, and I know is on the books for 2024. COVID wrecked everything. Was we have to shrink these pitching staffs down again because it's gotten too unwieldy. We're seeing some teams carrying 14 pitchers. Most of them carry 13 pitchers and. That's sort of part of the problem, I think, is you get all this velocity because the nobody's actually taught how to pitch anymore. Everybody's, oh, throw as hard as you can for as, as long as you can, then you're out, and then we'll bring the next guy and do the same thing. So you can limit the velocity parade and mar- limit the March relievers of the ball, which I think really ruined the playoffs for me because it was, every game was like four and a half hours with a sh- parading relievers in who can't throw strikes. I think that is something that really needs to be thrown in there. Like, but start at 13, get it down to 12 eventually. I think you have to get that in there.
1: I agree. Uh, although I think that, like you said, it's got to be a slow process there because you're going to have a lot of injuries because these guys just aren't used to throwing more multiple innings. They're, they're used to going in there and emptying the tank for an inning, and that's it. Uh, yeah. If you have less pitchers, you're going to have guys throw multiple innings at times. But yeah, I agree with that. The other one that I'd like to see, I'd like to see a rule change concerning uh, what what you, what. You, I'm losing my train of thought for a second. Uh, I'd like to see a rule change concerning not only the shift, but the amount of time that players can take between pitches. I think I'd like to see that rule get enforced a little bit more. And the other thing that I really think baseball needs to start exploring is some, and I know they're doing this in some of the minor, minor leagues. It might be time to go to the robotic umpire behind the plate. The The, the ball and strike calls that we saw in the post are just, it's just awful. It's awful to see games lost on, on that. Yeah. But th- those, those I think are less likely. The ones that I think are more likely, I think there's a real chance that
2: something's going to happen on the shift. Yeah, I, I really do. I think the pitcher thing, I think it's good. They're going to start at 13. And say, Hey, in three years we're going down to 12, be ready.
1: Yeah. The, the, pitcher thing I could see, give me the shift. Uh, I think that's some probably bigger ass. The universal DH is coming. And can we figure out the baseballs? Yes. Can we just use the same damn ball all season? Why do we have to change the ball every damn year? I don't I don't get it. Yeah. Figure out the baseballs and figure out what kind of grip the pitchers can use for the baseballs too, by the way.
2: Yeah, that, that's important. That's a very big deal.
1: Just uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it's it's the only sport where I see this. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing it. But in the NFL, they're talking about we change the footballs in the middle of the season. No. Basketball, it seems like they use the same basketball every game. How come baseball, they're changing the balls in the middle of the season?
2: Yeah, I don't get that one, but let's get to the point here. We got with most of the issues here. We know they're not going to talk much this month because with the holidays coming up and there's still some bad blood from these negotiations, the one on the day before lasted about like half an hour at best, and they're gone. I think we're not going to see much talks happening until January, be my guess. Like, At what point should we be concerned if there's not a deal?
1: uh i'd be concerned if there's not a deal by the middle of february i'd be very concerned if there's not a deal by the start of spring training yeah that that's that's my and and you're right that nobody's going to talk this month this month is going to be just a lost month they'll still probably start up negotiations in earnest after new year's and uh you want to see a deal by the middle of february at the latest and if there's not i'm going to be concerned and then if there's not a deal by spring training then then you're starting
2: to talk about are we going to miss games I think honestly with, with them, I think that's the time. I think like February one, if they're not making any progress and you start worrying about it, and then like I get like, they will lap a lop a weep off spring training, but the issue there is like that's where some teams make start making the money is right now nobody makes money because nobody cares because it's January. That's happening in baseball. Like you can't cancel winner meetings, who cares? You can do, not do that stuff. But the second you start losing spring training gates and teens don't have spring training games in the last week of February, then the money starts getting altered a little bit and that could lead to more problems.
1: Right. So the little history, then if you go back to the 94, 95 strike, that's when things really, really started to heat up. Cause once you get to the spring training, that's when there's money. And now all of a sudden, if Max Scherzer doesn't show up for spring training, there's no $43 million in Max Scherzer's hand or whatever his port, you know, it gets played out over the course of the year, but he's not making his money. And more importantly, probably are some of those guys who are lower down there who really need the money. Now, the union says that they're prepared, they've got a war chest, that's what they called it, and they're gonna support their players if they have to. But that's when you start getting people across the picket line. It's, it's a lot easier said than done. Right now, it's real easy to stand union strong. It's harder when, when the money is not being paid to you and you need the money. Yeah, or, and, and there are some horrible stories about the so-called scabs of the of the last strike, uh, You know, health insurance being used as leverage to get them to show up and cross the picket line and stuff like that. And you don't want to get there.
2: Yeah. Plus the owner's side, too. They're going to start like they like this the ones who this is their livelihood where they're making their money off of this. And the second you're not able to sell those tickets and you have to offer people refund, then you're going to start seeing a little urgency thing on their side, starting to get things done.
1: Yeah, Hal Steinbrenner is quick to tell everybody that unlike every other owner in baseball, his business is baseball. That's it. The Yankees have the Yankees. So, yeah, Hal Steinbrenner, he doesn't want to can't The Yankees did lose a lot of money. The, the COVID situation, I think, plays in here too, Mike. Because a lot of these owners lost a lot of money in 2020 over what happened with the shortened season. I don't know if they can withstand another shortened season. I think it actually gives a little leverage to the, to the players. And then you also have a guy, Steve Cohen's the one who's interesting to me. Because Steve Cohen has enough money that he doesn't really care about the money. But Steve Cohen just spent all this boatload of money. To He probably wants to see his team play. I think he'd like to see... I think he paid these players so that they can actually play for his team.
2: Yeah. I think also one thing to factor in here as well is like, <coughs> as you mentioned with the COVID year, a lot of guys lost money. Whether it's the players who lost like like uh, over, over half their salaries for the year, the owners lost all the ticket revenue here. Not only are they... I don't in their position where they can afford to be losing money again by delaying the start of 2022. You have a perception problem man. if you roll on March 31st and not having baseball play because we're still squalling over the money.
1: Yeah. So my guess is that they're going to get it done uh, in, in enough time for spring training. But you know, I, I thought that they were going to get it done with the COVID year too. And, and I was wrong. It took them way longer than it should have to get it done. And we've talked about that on this podcast. They blew a golden opportunity to be the, the only thing on TV. Uh, so I, I'm not sure. I think they'll get it done, but
2: the, these two sides,
1: nothing would surprise me.
2: Yeah. The thing you worry about here is that they don't seem to realize that like that, this is not 1994 where they had a lot more market share. Like now you have stuff like the NBA is a lot more popular. The NHL is on, you're going to have college basketball going down to tournament. You have all the Twitch streams. You have all the alter alternative forms of entertainment. And, people are not gonna be so quick to run back to baseball.
1: I think the last part of your statement there is the, is the most telling part, uh, Mike. And, and I think the COVID year should show them that. There are a lot of people who said, you know what? I actually don't miss sports that much. I don't need to watch baseball. I, I, I learned that there's a lot of good docu- documentaries on Netflix and I'm gonna start watching those. Or I learned that Disney plus has some great content and I'm gonna watch that and so on and so forth. Baseball better be careful. They they really better be careful because I think that the COVID year took some fans who were putting on the game because out of habit they started to find some new stuff. And if there's another work stoppage, they may never get those guys back.
2: Yeah, especially if the proc is not great like it was at the end of 2021. No, it. Uh, I mean, I,
1: I I was watching the Yankees, so I saw bad baseball all year long but uh yeah from what i i I, the the product is the sport has a little bit of trouble too uh so i think they're gonna get this done i really hope they do Uh, i i'd be disappointed if we miss games but there's a there's a lot of room to negotiate between both sides they're not close they're not close to a deal i think that's important to emphasize
2: yeah, I think with this one, I think for me the key date is if we get to the Super Bowl, which is February 13th this year, and they don't have a deal done yet, that's a big problem because again, you still have the whole the rest of the off season with all these free agents you got to sign, you got to open camps, you got to have stuff like in motion here, and if you start impacting like, when these guys can show up and be ready to work out and stuff like that, that's when you're starting to have issues.
1: And and that is when the average guy is going to start to care. Because let's be honest, the average guy doesn't care about baseball until the Super Bowl's over. But if the Super Bowl is over and there's no start, pitchers and catchers aren't reporting, then people are going to start to care. So they they should take advantage of this opportunity in January, in the beginning of February, when nobody cares about baseball, to sit down, get it done, work out a deal, and and let's go. Let's let's have a good twenty twenty two season. And that's what I think is going to happen. But We'll see because they're far apart and and the owners have uh, really really not been willing to compromise uh, over the past few years and I hope that the the, the fan base uh, I feel like the tides are turning a little bit on the owners uh, I think that over the, historically fans supported the concept of salary caps and things of that sort but I think the tides are starting to turn a little bit and I hope that continues.
2: Yeah, the millionaires versus billionaires narrative hasn't been t- tossed around nearly as much at this point, where it usually is at the, at the start of a lockout.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and I think part of it is Steve Cohen. Uh, I hate to sound like I'm just wax poetic about Steve Cohen, but I am. the The fact that he came in there and show, I think he showed baseball fans, especially here in New York, oh yeah, this is what the New York teams used to do. They used to just buy people because they want them. Yeah, Th- this is fun. Uh, I mean, as a Met fan, I just have to imagine that you're just on cloud nine after the Wilpons to see uh, just a total 180.
2: Oh, for sure. Let's hope that this gets done. Let's hope that we're sit- not sitting here in February talking about why they don't have a deal yet. So, Phil, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll have you back on like as the situation warrants as more updates come through.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Uh, um, this is. Priority number 1 for me uh, in the world of sports. I am fascinated by this stuff. Uh, I know a lot of people aren't, but baseball is my number one sport and I like this labor negotiation stuff, so I'm happy to jump on anytime.
2: Thanks again Phil, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Show me the money. Let's look at
0: make you feel good.
2: All right, show me the money. Week number 13 NFL picks here. We're now past Thanksgiving into December. Joining me today, good friend of mine, Giants fan Phil Lombardo is back on the horn. Phil, how are you?
4: I'm doing great, Mike. Happy
2: belated Thanksgiving. Happy belated Thanksgiving to you, and happy Max Scherzer signing.
4: Yes, it's uh, it, well, probably the most exciting free agency signing, I'd say, since Johan. Uh, in my opinion, so uh, very, very excited to have him on board.
2: Yeah, I said at the top of the show, I think it's the biggest like free agent like tr- culture change science since Pedro in '05. I guess mean, that, that's what I compare it to.
4: Yeah, oh, yeah, I would say I would, yeah, I would definitely say that's comparable too. So that, I mean, yeah, it's just um, it, it's really good to it's refreshing, you know, uh, you know, having the Will Pons on board for so long, um, kind of just you, you get jaded. But um, I'm just hoping that this is a sign of things to come in the future.
2: Yeah, I I also am enjoying the fact that the Yankees are the ones who are interested in everybody, We're not actually signing anybody. I I think that's hilarious.
4: You know what? I think that you know Hal Steinbrenner has his own business sense and mentality, and he's going to do things his way. Um, I don't necessarily think the Yankees are going to end up empty-handed by the end of the off season, but you know we'll we'll see what happens. I, I think they 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 know they have holes to fill, and I think Brian Cashman has a plan. But you never really know until things start happening. So.
2: Yeah, for sure. Let's get to the football now. And you're a big giant guy. The Giants last week had a very, very ugly win over the Eagles. I feel like it's more of the Eagles playing terribly, your defense playing great, than anything the Giants did spectacularly. What did you think about that Giant game?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I would, I would say there's just really not much to say about the Giants' win over Philly. I mean, it's obviously always nice to beat them, especially because the Giants have been really struggling um, in the last, like, six, seven years against them. I think it was something like the last, 12 now that they won this game. It was like the last 12 out of 15 they've lost to the Philly or something like that. Um, so uh, it's been the same story all season though, with the giants, you know, their, their defense typically does come out to play at least for the first half, you know, even against the Rams, they played them tough. They played them tough. And then they kind of just got tired and then they get blown out. Um, there's a couple of games that they just kind of got a little out of hand, but their defense has been the strength of this team all season. Um, they're when when it comes to the when it comes to the like what drives them is they're very opportunistic and obviously I think they're I think after the three interceptions they had on Jalen Hurts last week it makes it now um eight straight games with an interception and I don't know if it's a Giants record but I think it's tied for a Giants record so pretty impressive any way you want to swing it which is nice to see um, and, and I think they could definitely benefit from another pass rusher or you know even three in the draft next year um, they play tough in the red zone they don't give up the big play. Um, yeah, but, I mean, on the other side of the ball, that's where I see the issues, you
2: know? Yeah, I know. And they started to address on that last week. They fired Jason Garrett, and then Joe Judge did this weird thing where he wouldn't tell us that Fred Kitchen's calling plays. Then we all knew Frank Kitchens was going to call the plays. And I didn't get a chance to watch that game too much because, obviously, the league decided with in the brilliance that they put the Jets and Giants not at the same time as each other. So I was watching the Jet game. So from what you saw, was there much of a change in the play calling from Garrett to Kitchen's?
4: Um, yeah, there was like a, a a very, you know, I would say basic difference in the way he was moving things around and trying to identify, like, you know, make it a little bit easier on Daniel Jones, because one of the biggest things I think that any Giants fan that has some, some football knowledge can see is that there was just no pre-snap movement. They weren't you know, doing any shifts. They weren't putting guys in motion and being able to make it easy for Daniel Jones to identify whether it's going to be a zone or a man that he's going up against, which for any growing quarterback or young quarterback in the NFL, it's like, it, 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 that seems like common sense to be able to make things a little bit easier on him. But you know what? Jason Garrett is a, you know, a, an, an old dog and it's hard to teach him new tricks. Um, with Freddie Kitchens, I I think it it, it, it still wasn't great. You know, the the offense obviously struggled still in the red zone. This team has been the worst team in the red zone for the last two years, it feels like I know, at least for this year. And they were pretty bad again last week. Um, Obviously, they got that one touchdown and that was all they needed. But you'd like to be able to see them have a little more success the rest of the season as they start to get a little more comfortable with some of the stuff that Freddie Kitchens decides to implement.
2: Yeah, that's one change. It might be another coming out of the season. We saw, I think, Sunday morning prior to the game, Ian Rapoport, meth on that, reported that Dave was on his way out. It was to make all the Giant fans celebrate because they've been wanting that for at least three years now. But the report also said that right now they're talking about either promoting from within or bringing somebody with like a Patriot background to work with Joe Judge. And to me, that concerns me because that's more another sign they seem to be content that like, oh, we have it right, but not being open to outside ideas or what they really should do with that team. Like, what do you think about what that report was saying?
4: Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, I think we've, I think everybody has finally hit the breaking point um, outside of, and within the giants organization. Um, John Mayer has, I was at the um, Eli Jersey retirement and um, I watched the stray Jersey retirement and he got booed heavily during both of those when he went up to talk. And I think he's undoubtedly in fear of completely losing the fan base if he doesn't make some major changes. Um, Garrett was the first to go, and I think you know any all football fans would assume they know who's next, regardless of how the season turns out. The Giants are four and seven. I can't see them, you know, getting to the playoffs. They're right now, they're kind of quote unquote in the hunt still, but you know, some, still still some tough games coming up, and and I just don't see many scenarios where they are fighting for a playoff spot. But either way, Dave Gettleman's another prime example of an antiquated mind. You know, he's made some decent moves like drafting Xavier McKinney, trading down, and getting Kadarius Tony, trading for Leonard Williams. Um, but overshadowed by, you know, the pick of Saquon Barkley. It's been a complete flop. The, you know, drafting Daniel Jones, who still has not really proven himself to be worthy of that sixth pick. Um, the signing of Nate Solder to a record contract, which still to this day just boggles my mind. Um, On top of another, you know, a a number of other head-scratching moves. So, um, in my opinion, it's time's run out. It's time for a fresh voice with fresh ideas, and you know, somebody with some sort of clue on how to produce a winner in the new era of the NFL. Um, None of this good old boy stuff, like you mentioned, with pulling a guy from the Patriots uh, organization or somebody with you know, a Patriots background. I don't want that. What what I was looking, I was doing a little bit of research, you know. Louis Riddick has always been somebody who I've been a big fan of. Um, I think that he's somebody who would bring a, a, a brand new element uh, of, uh, you know, progressive thinking to, to the Giants, maybe even a John Dorsey from Cleveland. I thought he did a really good job and I thought when they let him go, that was a little premature um, for, for at least, you know, in, in my opinion, uh, Lake Dawson for the bills or uh, another name I was reading more about is Quesia Adolfo Mensa, who is from the Browns as well. And uh, I just want to get these guys in the building and see what their vision is for the future of the Giants. Get get as many brilliant front office minds in front of you and let them enlighten you a little bit because maybe that will kind of open John Mara's eyes and, their, and, the, and the current Giants front office mind, uh, eyes to what they need to do to be successful in the future.
2: Yeah, that's a future problem. Right now they have a more immediate problem as they play the Dolphins week. The Dolphins are hot. They won four in a row and... Both of these are sort of an interesting spot, but basically like one game out of a mediocre playoff race where the Giants are game back at the seven spot in the NFC because Washington mm-hmm. has it at five and six, and it's a must-win game for both teams. So, like, what do you think the Giants need to do here to win this game?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the intrigue this matchup brings would go away if the Giants are forced to run Mike Glennon out there. Um, you know, Daniel Jones, I still believe, is doubtful for this matchup. He might have gotten upgraded today. I didn't see it. Um, towards the end today, but if he, let's say hypothetically Daniel Jones plays, I see a pretty evenly matched contest here. Both of these teams kind of have the same genetic makeup when it comes to having two strong defenses and two semi-limited offenses, who you know kind of you know show flashes of being able to move the ball, but really still haven't figured it out completely. Um, I will say I love Brian Forrest. I think what he's done with the Dolphins it, it has been great. I know they got off to a one and seven start, and that was actually shocking to me. They lost a ton of close games, a couple of bad luck uh, end of the game scenarios for them. Um, and, and it happened to the Giants, too. So both of these teams could easily, just easily, see their records being flipped with the Dolphins at seven and five and the Giants at seven to four. Uh, uh, you know, and four. And that's football for you. Um, and, what, and, and also, the thing that scares me about the Dolphins, though, is that two of them had maybe its best game as a pro last week. Um, and then the last four weeks, obviously, the Dolphins have looked. Every bit like that 10 and 6 team we saw last year. Um, the Giants, as I said before, win games of defense. Um, but um, if Daniel Jones ends up missing this game, you know, you, you can't really see too many scenarios where the Giants pull this one out. Um, the one thing that's weird about this game, though, Mike, is that so last year the Giants went in at 4 and 7 into Seattle with their backup quarterback, Colt McCoy. And they ended up winning that game 17, 12 or something like that. And their defense had been gaining steam right before that game and then had their best performance of the year. I think they had they like sacked Russell Wilson, six times Leonard Williams was an absolute beast. Um, and guess what? Now you have the possibility of Mike Glennon, the backup for the giants at four and seven traveling to a dolphins team. Um, and, you know, I obviously it's hard. Like I said, there's not too many scenarios where you could see the giants pulling it out. But they proved me wrong last year, so maybe some more Week 13 magic is in store um, if Mike Lennon's in the huddle. Um, But the one thing I wanted to point out to you is um, there's just one matchup I think, um, if both teams are at the most full strength, meaning Daniel Jones starting, where I would keep an eye on is rookie Jalen Phillips versus Andrew Thomas, the left tackle. So Jalen Phillips is a defensive end rookie from Miami for the Dolphins. He's had five sacks in the last four games, he had three sacks last week against Carolina, and we all know how well. Andrew Thomas has progressed this year. He was playing an all-pro level before he went on the IR for the Giants. Um, so I think at the end of the day, that's the one matchup you can really kind of focus on because whoever wins that matchup could very well be the difference in, in how this game turns out.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we saw Jalen Phillips digging against the Jets a couple weeks ago. He did make some noise, and he's coming on strong. So that's a key that game. Especially, as you said, if Mike Glenn's back there, Mike
4: Lennon's not as mobile as Daniel Jones. He need all the help he can get. Exactly. You're going to have to protect Mike Glennon because he actually has the ability to make the NFL throws, but he really, he's, he is a statue back there. So you got to protect him. Um, there's no other options.
2: Yeah, there certainly are. Let's get to the picks. The reason why you're here this week, uh, Troy Moriello was here last week. He went two and one on his picks. He had a pretty good week. He won with the Patriots laying six and a half against Tennessee. They won the game running away. He had the Falcons laying the point in Jacksonville. They won that game easily. He lost the Vikings getting the three in San Francisco. but I think Dalvin Cook getting hurt really hurt him in that game.
4: Oh yeah, I mean, you know Dalvin Cook is somebody who is such a such a game changer. they The, the Vikings are they, they shape their entire offense around him. So whenever they lose him, it, they kind of it feels like they just lose their heart.
2: Yeah, I also went two in one last week. I had the Packers laying the point against the Rams. I won that one. I had the Ravens laying the four on Sunday, You had to watch that awful football game, but they did win that game. I lost the Cowboys laying the seven on Thanksgiving, and then they gave me a stinker against the Raiders and lost that, right? So two and one on the week for me. Man, two two
4: and one's always better than than one and two. You can't expect three and zero oh every week, you know.
2: Yeah, you can't. I am just so annoyed I had to sit there and watch that Raven game because that was probably one of the worst football games I've ever, ever seen played, and I had to sit there because I had the four on the line in that game.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm happy I didn't uh, tune into that one.
2: Yeah, So on the year, Team Challengers is 14-21-1. They've had a rough year. I haven't done much, but I'm only 19-70. and 17. I'm barely above 500. I've been hovering like on that point. I can't really get much on Madden. I'm hoping this is the week that something happens.
4: Yeah, you know, I'm going to have to help Team Challenger get that record up a little bit.
2: Yeah, you are. And you're up first as the guest. So where are you going with pick
0: number one?
4: Um, well, actually, so you, you said you got burned
0: by the Raiders last week. So I'm going to go... With Las Vegas, um, they're favored by two and a half over Washington. Uh, Vegas is coming off an absolute statement win in Dallas on Thanksgiving. And even though they'll mostly be most likely be out uh, without Darren Waller, I think Foster Moreau fills the void and the Raiders coast at home. They've had some extra rest after playing on Thursday, while the football team is playing on short rest after playing on Monday and getting a win over Seattle. I think the Raiders win comfortably I have him winning 27-13.
2: Yeah, that's a, the rest factor is a good point in that game. That's something I hadn't considered with that one. And also I will point out, this is one I just stay the hell away from the football team because Taylor Heineke's been hot and Raiders are too streaky. I Brave man have taken that game. I couldn't do it.
0: Yeah, I just kind of, I, I, I just I just saw that matchup. I think the Raiders, you know, they kind of, they're up and down, but I, I, I think they're just a better football team than Washington right now. Um, so I, I, I have faith. I got faith. Just win, baby.
2: All right, just win for pick one. We're going with pick number two.
0: All right, so uh, I'll I'll take the team that Washington beat last week, and that's Seattle. So, so I know Seattle has really, really been struggling this year, but they're getting three and a half at home against San Francisco. San Francisco is, uh, you know, it, they have a slew of injuries right now, and it's and it's def- and it's reported now that Debo Samuel and possibly standout Elijah Mitchell will be missing the game. So. We all know how these rivalry matchups go, these in-division matchups. They're tough. They're gritty. They're very, very chippy, especially between Seattle and San Francisco. Um, so I like Seattle to eat this one out, not only to cover the spread, but to win the game outright 23-20. You
2: would have some fun on the money if you played that one with the outright number there.
0: Yeah, for sure. I was actually thinking about making that bet myself.
2: All right, so that's pick number two. You're going to pick number three.
0: All right, so... Quite possibly the most intriguing game of the year, and you, you're going to expect me not to pick this. I mean, this has the makings of an instant classic. Buffalo minus two and a half over New England. Um, New England is the hottest team in football, and I don't think anybody saw this coming. Obviously, with them, you know, having a rookie quarterback and making a lot of like, you know having a lot of turnover on this team. But how could we ever doubt the guru Bill Belichick? Um, but I got faith in Buffalo. I know that they've been very streaky too this year. Um, And even with Tredavious White out, I think the opposite of what most people will think is going to happen. I think the team rallies around each other, especially on defense. I think you see Micah Hyde pick off Matt Jones. I think you see Mac Jones have a game where he really struggles here. He's a rookie. He's due for a stinker. He's been playing really well on all the credit to him. But I just really like the Bills at home with the Buffalo fans going wild. Jumping through tables on a Monday night, that atmosphere is going to be absolutely bonkers. Um, and I think we're going to just see one of those performances that we saw from Buffalo early in the season. Um, I like Buffalo at home to reclaim first place in the division. I have them winning 31-26 in a game that I think will certainly live up to the hype.
2: I hope you're right. Cause I'm really sick of New England having just one down year for the right back and being good again. I would want that, that their fans have to suffer a little bit because we've been through enough.
0: Exactly, and I think I'm picking a little bit with the heart here, but I'm taking the people pick. Everybody wants Buffalo, so let's go, Buffalo.
2: Well, You are a man of the people, sir.
0: <laughs> I, I have been known to be that. <laughs> uh,
2: all right, I'm up now. Pick number one. I'm going to go to lay the big wood here. I'm going to lay the 9.5 with the Colts against the Texans down in Houston. I watched that team last week, Houston, against my guys, and they were awful. They were 14-3, couldn't do a thing against a very lousy Jet defense second half. They were dominated here. Colts coming off a loss, a game they have to win. Jonathan Taylor's going to run that ball down their throws. And Jonathan's going for a buck fifty, three touchdowns. Colts blew them out earlier. Colts are going to do it again. I think the Colts are going to win this game huge. So I'm going to lay the big win with Indy. Pick one.
0: Yeah, I was actually flirting with taking Houston minus nine and a half because they are, are plus nine and a half at home. But they just are. They're terrible. So, I, you know, I, I think if you're going to take anybody, you got to go Colts there.
2: All right, pick number. So I'm going heads up with you on that Seahawks. I'm going to lay the three and a half with the Niners, and the Niners did burn me once this year. I picked against them. I think This Is Me is more of an anti-Seattle pick because Seattle is not the same team. Russell Wilson has not been the same since he came back with a finger injury. They have had issues on defense all year. Jamal Adams is not like to tackle anybody. He likes to hit, and the Niners take advantage of this. Even without Debo Samuel, they have enough weapons on offense. Their defense will take advantage of a very suspect Seattle line. Three and a half is not a big number. I know I'm risking the hook there. This game could be a three-point game, but I think the Niners will find a way to win this game. I'll take it. Go out, heads up with you. Take the Niners here, laying the three and a half pick, two. All uh,
0: right, Maybe we'll have to make a little side bet after the call.
2: <laughs> yeah, we'll do that after the call. And pick number three, I'm going to take a game that's interesting and like all under the radar in the one o'clock when I'm going to take the Bengals laying the three at home against the Chargers. And the Chargers, for me, are a very weird team this year. They have these ups and downs. They look great one week. They look awful the next week. They're flying east, early window against the Bengals, and the Bengals are coming off a very big win over the Steelers. Now they come home laying just the field goal. I think their defense will come to play here. I think they'll take advantage of the San Diego of the LA defense. I think the Bengals make a statement here and pick up a big victory. I'm only laying three. I think I'm gonna win by a touchdown. I'm gonna take the Bengals laying the three at home for the final pick of the week.
0: Yeah, I'm just really impressed with Joe Burrow and the Bengals' offense. I mean, Jamar Chase has obviously exceeded everybody's expectations. And like you said, the Chargers are a little bit suspect. Um, I do like Justin Herbert. I like um, what they've been able to do over there um, with Brandon Staley, the way he's changed the culture a little bit, uh, pulling out some of these closer games. But, you know, I I, I believe in the Bengals. I think think that's a good pick for you.
2: All right, so to reset the picks for the week, Phil is going with the Raiders laying 2.5 at home against the Washington football team. The Seahawks getting 3.5 at home against the 49ers. The Bills laying 2.5 on Monday night against the New England Patriots. I'm going with the Colts laying the 9.5 in Houston against the Texans. I'm going heads up with Phil laying the 3.5 with the 49ers in Seattle. And the Bengals, minus 3 at home against the LA Chargers. Those are your picks for Week 13. Coming up next week, we're going back to the Jet fan well. Here we're talking to Martino Pucci. We're going to break down the Jet Eagle game next weekend. And... We'll see if Zach Wilson actually improves a little bit because he's scaring me, dude.
4: Yeah, you know what, man? I, I I don't think you can you can go too crazy about it. I try to bring up Eli Manning. You know, his rookie season, he was absolutely awful, man. And I, I'm not saying that you know he he was like you know the, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, but he was an absolute menace when he when he got in the groove. And and you just got to give the kid some time to develop. He had a little bit of an injury, I think. You know. The rest of the season is kind of going to gonna be a really good test for him, um, you know, just so he can kind of just get his feet back underneath him.
2: Yeah, I think it worries me two things to him. It's number one, the decision-making is very suspect at times. Like that awful pick he threw last week when he was trying to sh- throw a full or shovel Ty Johnson wasn't even looking at the pass. And the fact he's missing on some of these simple throws where it's like where he's air mailing uh, short passes to running backs, he's skipping balls the feet of receivers, running drags. Like that stuff worries me.
4: Yeah, I mean, with, with, with that kind of stuff, Mike, it's all it's, it's in his head. Yeah. That's all mental stuff. He has the tools to, to get it done. So as long as he just kind of just calms down and, and, and allows the game to come to him, I think everything will start to come together.
2: For sure. Phil, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I know you're a big Notre Dame football guy. Brian Kelly left you. And contrary to what most people are going crazy on social media trees, I believe you said you are not as upset with him for leaving.
4: No, I mean honestly. So I'm I'm a, I'm a Notre Dame realist. You know, I don't think many things change when we get a big name coach in here, and he gets the opportunity to go to an SEC, SEC powerhouse like LSU. How can you blame the guy for leaving? I know that the way he left was a little abrupt, and he probably could have gave his team more than seven minutes. I think that was a little cold. Um, and, and I'm not, but I'm not there to to see it, so I'm not going to really, you know go crazy over that but i can't complain about him leaving um the notre dame they they don't play in a power five conference so they're never going to be able to get those schedules and be able to get the opponents that are going to have them give them the ability to coast into the playoffs they're going to have to have other teams lose to play them in until they make some you know major changes to way to the way they schedule games um or they join a conference i i i I can't I can't blame the guy. I, I actually wish him well. I think he's a great coach. Um, and I also am excited because, um, you know, I really think um, if they end up hiring the defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman, I think he's going to be a fantastic Notre Dame representative. And I think the team isn't going to miss a beat with him.
2: Yeah, for sure. I have my own thoughts on the Brian Kelly situation. I'll share in the two-minute drill right after this. The two-minute drill. All right, two-minute drill time. I'm going to talk a little college football coaching. And one thing that really does grind my gears about the college football situation is how weaselly some of these coaches are. We had this crazy coaching cycle last week where Lincoln Riley bails on Oklahoma to go get paid $100 million to take over at USC, while Brian Kelly they ran the hell out of Notre Dame to go grab a bag from LSU. And I want to throw one thing out first here. I think it's hysterical that all these colleges were crying poverty during the pandemic last year about, Oh, we can't make any more money. We're not selling tickets. We have to cut all the non-revenue sports. We can't afford to run baseball or track and field or water polo. But now they're finding nine figures worth of guaranteed contracts to the football coaches, but that's not my big issue here. It's one thing to take a different job after the season, which I get that happens where I'm not against guys trying to advance their careers and if somebody wants to give you more money, sure, they'll do it. But the system of basically going behind closed doors or back channeling to post the coaches in-season really, really pisses me off. And Brian Kelly is a special kind of weasel, a very special one, because he immediately abandoned his 11-win Notre Dame team to go to LSU for $95 million. For those who are not following the college football playoff right now, and we are heading to a conference chances this weekend. Here's where we're at. Georgia and the SEC undefeated, number one. They're getting in, win or lose. Michigan upset Ohio State last weekend. They're number two. They beat Iowa in the Big Ten title game. They're in. Alabama is sitting at three. They have a loss. They look very sluggish against Auburn. If they get beat by Georgia, and it's not close, let's say Georgia dominates this game, they could be out. Cincinnati, the only other undefeated team here. They hold the four. Their biggest win come over Notre Dame, which is 11-1 on the year. The Fighting Irish could have been right there in a spot to grab one of those spots if one of the other three teams slips up. But Brian Kelly said, you know what? I do not care. Because if we get in, I know we cannot win. He didn't even wait for them to find out they were not in the playoff. He just up and left. And in the latest rankings onto the playoff rankings the selection committee dropped nerding behind oklahoma state which right now beat oklahoma can win the big 12 they beat baylor on saturday and sneak in i think what's based on the fact that kelly is not being there can impact how the fighting eyes perform. and kelly himself he didn't bother telling his players or his coaches they all found through the media we heard stories about how coaches were out recruiting and then they find out as they're leaving the meeting oh kelly's leaving He sent a message over a Teamworks app saying he would explain more at a team meeting at 7 a.m. How did that meeting go? This is from Pete Sampson from The Athletic on Twitter. Multiple sources indicated that Brian Kelly's address to the team on Tuesday morning lasted less than two minutes. They turned around and walked out. He did not take questions from the players. Not surprising because Brian Kelly has always been a scumbag. Remember a few years ago, we had a story on ESPN about Matt LaFleur and Robert Sala Current NFL coaches, where Graz has worked for Kelly when he's back in Central Michigan, getting invited to a party he threw, always spent the whole thing working for Kelly, shoveling snow and moving cars. This is also the same coach who helped get a student killed, student worker, making him film practice in a hydraulic lift when there were 60 mile per hour winds and then the lift collapsed and killed the student. His decision to run practice, his decision to have the student film it. Notre Dame was found liable for that, did to pay a $77,000 fine. He is legitimately a horrendous human being. He's pulled this crap before. This is from Elder Johnson on Twitter, citing a story from ESPN. Over the past 30 years, there have been 12 instances of a coach winning at least 11 games in his final season in a Power 5 automatic qualifying school. Five of them left for the NFL. Five of them either retired or were forced to resign due to scandals. Two of them left for different college jobs. I take a while to guess who the two are. It's Brian Kelly leaving Cincinnati for Notre Dame. Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame for LSU. Speaking of Cincinnati exit, do not forget Brian Kelly announced he was leaving at a postseason banquet and then snuck out of the police escort to duck the media. Think about LSU too. LSU, who could not wait to run an order who won the national championship two years ago, by the way. They could not wait to get him out of town to hire Ch- Brian Kelly. Those two deserve each other. And. If somebody bigger comes calling for Brian Kelly in a few years, LSU cannot forget how they got him because he will do the same thing to them if he gets an opportunity. They deserve each other. And with that, I want to thank the, sh- the guests for this week's show. I want to thank Phil Freyda for coming on, talking about the CBA, some interesting stuff there. I want to thank Phil Lombardo for doing the Week 13 NFL picks. Definitely a fun conversation there. If you want to stuff like this podcast, including my look back at the Giants' last game against the Buccaneers. Sort of came out between podcasts. You can check out my take on that game for the blog, Subscribe Describe this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for "Just and the Suffering, our favorite podcast platform. Follow episodes there. Even our bonus episode, the Cyber Monday Culture Special. I highly recommend that one. It was a lot of fun. Check it out on the podcast feeds. Feel for your feedback and starring as well, it'll make the podcast even better going forward. You can check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Favors of these chats with Phil Freya, Phil Lombardo, they are up there right now for you to check out. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Just follow me on Twitter at M Phillips331. It's M P H I L I P S 331. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Coming up next week, we have a couple of good podcasts on the horn for you. We're working hard over here trying to get you some content for the holiday season. There's a lot of stuff happening in the sports world, but. We're going to go back to college basketball. We're going to do it tied into that, some NFL picks. Plus, the Sky Guys are back for finishing up Rebels Season 4 and more. Until if we have a better week than Yankees fans.
0: This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.